Welcome back to the Fastest Known Time podcast. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today's guest is Doug McKeever, who is a former professor of geology, a mountaineer and ultra runner based in Bellingham, Washington. He was a pioneer in the Washington trail running scene and holds several official and likely many unofficial FKTs. Thanks, Doug, for being on the show today. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> so the first question I have to ask, like, you have this lifelong relationship and passion with the mountains, and I'm kind of curious, like, how you got your start um, going out and doing these amazing things okay. in the mountains. Well, I started, uh, I was born in 1947 in Tacoma, and I started... Uh, hiking and camping when I was five, I don't know, five or so. And then I was a swimmer, uh, actually a good age group swimmer when I was a youth. And then I, uh, oh, I was in Boy Scouts and some of us older Scouts would um, venture off trail a little bit. And uh, eventually that led to this, my mother, wanted, my, my father died when I was very young, but my mother uh, wanted me to live a little longer, so she uh, enrolled me in the Mountaineers basic program in Tacoma. I learned to use an ice axe. And rope. We had manila ropes back then, and we tied the rope directly around our waist. There's no such thing as a harness or swami belt or anything like that. Anyhow, uh, so I started doing some summits. One of my first summits was the Brothers in um, the Olympics. And my first big mountain was when I was probably a junior in high school. It was Mount Shasta and Mount Rainier, and a bunch of things like that I could go on and on. I would talk for hours. But that's how I got into mountaineering, and I took the intermediate mountaineering class uh, with the mountaineers in Tacoma. And uh, then in 1967, I was offered a job to do one of the things I really wanted to do, and that was to be a, a fire lookout uh, in uh, Mount Rainier National Park. But I had another job. I had a job, an opportunity to be a, a field assistant with the uh, geological survey in the North Cascades, which was prior to it being a national park. This was the third year of a three-year program that Congress charged the USGS and the Bureau of Mines to investigate the area. This was what is now Satan Wilderness, but also what is the northern section of the North Cascades National Park. The charge was to investigate in detail to see if there were any unknown mineral deposits, which would perhaps preclude that particular area from being designated national park. The next year, Congress, we didn't find anything, at least not we're telling them we didn't find anything. But um, there was nothing that early miners hadn't already known about. So we uh, released the final report. And the next year, 1968, Congress established the North Cascades National Park. So I'm, I'm kind of getting all over the place here, but... Uh, I was hired primarily because even though I was just out of my freshman year in college, I didn't have a lot of geologic background, but I was young, I was strong, I was ambitious, and I uh, was had the mountaineering experience, and I think they hired me because they wanted me to help keep the geologists from hurting themselves in the glaciers and whatnot. I had the really good uh, fortune. I didn't appreciate it as much at the time, but I had the really good fortune to be a protege of Roland Tabor, a renowned USGS geologist, who unfortunately just passed away this last uh, winter. He was in his late 80s, but he was uh, he had a major influence on me. He would like to take me out among the four different field assistants because he knew I would do anything. I was trying to impress him, I guess. And he'd sit on a rock and he'd get his notepad out, start writing copious notes, and he'd say, "Doug, go across 
uh, this creek and go up that uh, zone of Red Rock over there and take a chip sample, which I would go down through Devil's Club, cross the ice cold creek, go up the other side and do the chip sample, come back and and uh, eager like puppy, what's next? And uh, it was just a memorable uh, summer. But that's uh, my long-winded way of saying that I got into the mountaineering early uh, after a, a hiking background, camping background. And I'm actually fortunate that my s- single mom, since my dad died in an accident when I was just four months old, that she was able to take my brother and my older brother and me out. Uh, I remember one thing she instilled upon me was never run on a trail. That's what she'd learned. Never run on a trail. You might trip. <laughs> well, anyone who's run on a trail very much has tripped a time or two, sometimes at the most awkward spots when you're not expecting it. But um, <laughs> I think I violated my mom's precept by a few, about 100,000 miles. <laughs> What what did your mom think when you started running on trails? She thought it was great. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. That was a few decades after, though. <laughs> yeah, you you were old enough to uh, deal yeah. with your own wounds at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious when you you said you did this uh, with the USGS your first after your first year of college, were you already on the track to? in geology or yeah, did I, this experience influence you? Good question. I Well, both. I went to the University of Idaho. I was going to major in forestry and in their college they have, uh, the College of Forestry, they have a wildlife uh, a wildlife specialist, which you think more be like zoology or something, but that's what I was going to be. I was going to be in wildlife management. But my very first semester, I took a class in physical geography and the professor said I was the only person he'd ever had. They got 100% on all of the tests, wow. which I, I still can't believe, but it must have been an easy test. But I really <laughs> liked the subject, and then I took another one or two geology classes there. I didn't feel didn't really fit in there, so I transferred to Western. And the funny thing is I transferred to Western Washington State College at the time in Bellingham because um, they didn't have a foreign language requirement. And I didn't want to take foreign language, so, so I went there. And Audrey says it was primarily to meet her. So, right. So, and I got a lot many stories about that. So anyway, I came to Western and did major in geology. And then uh, in 1971, I got a part-time job teaching geology at a brand new college called Watkins Community College. And then eight years ago, I retired from there after 43 years of teaching geology. In the meantime, I got a master's degree. I thought I'd get a PhD, but I never, I was too busy teaching. So I never really went on to get a PhD in geology. Mm-hmm. But it was a really good career. I, I was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds uh, like you found what you were meant to do. You I obviously so. had yeah. an aptitude. And yeah, that's really great. After this experience, you know, with the USGS later on in life, uh, you became a prolific ultra runner and um, trail runner. You know, you pioneered the Washington trail running scene. And I'm kind of curious. Uh, I know you've continued to stay active and well beyond, you know, the prime time when most people are running. <laughs> and weird. yeah. And, you know, I just watched your your little documentary, your documentary, as, documentary. You, as you called it. <laughs> um, and uh, I I was just struck, you know, like when you're in there and you're like, well, I've only run 1700 milers. And I'm like, this is just so many more than, than most people will ever run. And I'm just curious about um, how your relationship to running has changed as you've moved well Mm. into the master's class. Very good question. I, originally I wanted to run all the hundreds that there were, 
my my first hundred was Leadville in 1988, and at that time there I think there were only about 30 different hundreds in North America, and I did several repeats. I did Wasatch three times, for instance, and Leadville twice, Western States twice. Uh, I did a couple in Alaska, which that's my strength. If anything, it's in the cold weather, not good hot weather runner at all. But I see what was the, the evolution. Um, well, then I in the late 1990s, I started having injuries from too many tens of thousands of miles. I used to keep track of everything, and I finally compiled that I'd run about three times, equivalent three times around the world. And so the body took its toll. And I didn't get into running until I was relatively late, uh, in, in an advanced age compared to people these days. My first road race was when I was 37 years old. And I really got into when I, I'm one of these people that if something's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. <laughs> you, 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 you don't know anything about that, do you? Nothing. I know <laughs> no, nothing, nothing about that. So, <laughs> so I, I never did really get into doing anywhere close to all those different uh, runs, uh, different hundreds. And now there's well over 100. I don't know how many there are now. Well over 100 so different hundred milers. Yeah. And I never did. Unfortunately, I, I was pretty much done running by about 2000 or so my last race was in 2005 and it was a 50k and i was injured i couldn't train and i still was stupid enough to enter a race and my time was an hour and a half slower for 50k uh, than my best 50 mile time so i figured if i can't train this foolish to try to enter and then for some reason, I got back. Well, I wasn't running. I was injury free, but I was 10 or 20. I was about 20 pounds heavier than I was when I was fit. And I uh, entered a race. There was a Sun Mountain 25K and uh, over by Winthrop. And I'd worked for a range out of running quite a bit and volunteering. And I finally decided I'd, I'd do this. So I entered that one. I like that area. And I barely finished, the, well, I got to the one aid station right about the time the cutoff was. And I hadn't been used to that because be, I used to be competitive. And here I am running in the back of the pack. And they had a funny set of signs that people had put out. It was like the old Burma shave ads from decades ago. We'd have these series of short little sayings alongside the road. And finally, we'd end up Burma shave, which was a shaving product, obviously. Anyway, they had these things. There's someone in this race and a little 50 feet farther. Uh, his name is Doug. And then another one. He's been a very important uh, part of range out running. And the next one, uh, if you if you know Doug, give him a hug. If you don't know Doug, <laughs> hug somebody else. <laughs> and uh, people told me the day before when the 50K was, Doug, you're all over the course. Like, what are you talking about? It was those silly signs. Uh -huh. And so uh, that was was fun to do that. And I did a few more range out races, but then I just, I couldn't really, I was so slow and it just was frustrating. But I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I've learned a lot about don't compare yourself with your past. Mm -hmm. All my, I used to have all kinds of courses around Bellingham. I would do time trials on, and I don't even usually look at a watch anymore because I'm literally, it takes me twice as long to do anything, even if I'm trying to do it pretty hard now as I did before. And it got to be really frustrating. In fact, entering those races back in the oh, uh, five years ago or so, it was frustrating because I used to be able to run a, a 25K easily in two hours in training and now, and a hilly one. And now I, I don't think I broke four hours in any one of those four or five 25Ks I did for Rain Shadow. So 
um, the whole thing about that so-called documentary, which is hilarious instead of documentary. One thing that was fun to do in that was I realized I can't race anymore. I still love running, if you call it that, just shuffling along. But um, I have a lot more to give to a sport that's given me a lot, and that is volunteering. And so I volunteered for umpteen different races. I still work several. And I don't like to just do an aid station for an hour. I like to really get into it and spend several days really putting myself into it. I just love helping other runners and uh, just helping them get into a good sport. And it's something I have to give back to a sport that's given me an awful lot and still gives me an awful lot. I think that's a, a wonderful philosophy, you know, to give back to the sport that's given you a lot. And also it's important to, that's an important nugget. Don't compare yourself to your former self. No, you can't yeah. really, because you'll lose. Yeah. yeah. No, I, don't care, I don't care who, uh, you can be Jim Walmsley, you can be any anyone, you can be, Ann Trayson, and when she was at, after she retired from competitive running, and she was probably the best, arguably the best ultra runner in American history, if not world history, over her longevity and her accomplishments, she um, still gives back to the sport. And as she enters it all, she doesn't make a big deal about it because she knows she's probably half the speed she used to be. So if anyone, any younger person who is at the top of the game now is looking at this, they should. I think take that as advice. Don't try to compete. If you try to compete with yourself, you're not going to, eventually you're not going to be able to, and you probably end up getting injured. I think mm -hmm. that's what I, my problem was. I was running so much that um, the injuries just piled up. By the way, one thing that we had in the days when I started trail running, and a little bit about that, when I got into running in the late, or like the mid-1980s, my first road race was 1985, and... I got really enthusiastic about it. And my family would tell you, we didn't have a dinner conversation without five minutes of me going out, not mentioning running for Tramini's sake. And <laughs> it got to be pretty monotonous. And so I'd run on tracks and I would, and I was really getting into it. And I, I did a 257 marathon and a year or so after starting running and I worked really hard. I thought, okay, I did a 119 half and I thought, oh, double your, half time and had 10 minutes so i should have been able to run a 248 marathon i trained really hard i'd go up in the middle of winter and blizzards and go up to linden where the only track in the county that wasn't snow covered because the wind blew the snow away i'd go up there and i'd do you know at night i'd do a after work i'd do a workout of maybe six miles with a like a jog lap in between and i had to keep them down around uh under six minutes per mile Otherwise, it was a failed workout, and the last mm -hmm. one had to be at or better than the first one. So I do all this stuff, and oh, I'm going to I'm going to kill do a low 240 marathon. A year of training like that, and my marathon was 256. So one minute for all that work, <laughs> and so right about that time, my friend Richard West, who I just recently met in Bellingham, he said, "Oh, you should try a, a, a trail run." And so my first ultra was the Headwaters 50 mile down in Oregon. It started near Crater Lake National Park and went down, I think it was the Rogue River, either the Rogue or the Umpqua, I get those mixed up, but uh, there'd been a lot of snow there. And so the race director shortened the course to 38 mile. And we drive all the way down there. I still to this day, and I don't know if Richard knows either, which one of us said we had to run the whole 50 miles. So we did the whole 50 miles, just the two of us. We got to the start, the, the, the um, 
the, the new start was a 38 mile uh, run. So we'd run 12 miles. We get there just when they were about to begin. And so we head off and come to a creek. And I stopped and took my shoes and socks off, waded across the creek. On the other side, I was trying to dry my feet off and put shoes and socks on carefully. And a whole bunch of runners come along. And they splash through the creek, letting break in stride. And so I think, hmm, that's how it's done. <laughs> and I, you know, why, why I stopped, took my shoes and socks off, I have no idea because my feet were sloppy wet anyway from running through 12 miles of, of, of wet snow. Mm-hmm. But uh, I liked that run uh, enough and I was intrigued by it. I said, well, what more is there? I did another 50 mile called the Coast Range 50 and Oregon Coast Range that spring. Or no, uh, would have been the following spring, I think. I don't remember the timeline. But then I thought, well, could I do 100? And that's when I entered Leadville. And then. One thing led to another, and before you know it, they had this new run in uh, Colorado called Hard Rock. And in 1992, the first running of Hard Rock, I read horror stories about that. So I thought it sounds kind of appealing in a weird way. So <laughs> I, I sent my money in. I think it was $85. It wasn't much, and there were no requirements. They took any fool's money who thought they would go out there and risk their life running, literally because we didn't know if it would kill people. We didn't know what it would be like to run uh, 100 miles at altitude. That average mm-hmm. is over 11,000 feet, and it goes over 13,000 feet, I think, eight or nine times over Handy's Peak, 14,000 feet. Everyone knows about Hard Rock now. But we didn't know back then. Well, I finished, I think, 12th out of something like 38 finishers. My time was 40 and a half hours, which is mid-pack at best now. But still, and we, I actually, I say in the in the film, I carry an ice axe for 70 miles because there's so much snow. Wow. And the, the snow was no big deal. And I used my ice axe a little bit, but to carry it that far was, I don't mm-hmm. know, didn't really need to. So that was an adventure for sure. And then other hundreds came along and I did the Grand Slam, the original Grand Slam in 94. That was an interesting adventure because I had skied on Mount St. Helens in May of 1994, and I fell through. I was skiing on a breakable crust. Any skier listening to this knows that breakable crust is probably the worst skiing condition possible. And sure enough, I broke through the crust. My ski went east. I went south, and it twisted Mm -hmm. my knee bad, my only knee injury I've ever had. I couldn't train. All I could do to train, and I had all spent all my money in for the Grand Slam that year. All I could do to train, I couldn't run. All I could do was ride a bike. And the bike will strengthen your quads, but it doesn't do much for your downhill running. Mm-hmm. And people know that Western States has a good deal of downhill running. And so I was pretty pretty bad shape. I finished the race, but it was a pretty pathetic time, uh, 2809 or something like that. And I... Um, I remember that if I do a grand slam in baseball, of course, you have to get all the way around the base to the home plate. Well, I was having a hard time getting to first base. And the next one would have been, um, well, uh, what is uh, Vermont and then Leadville and then Wasatch. Well, after getting through Western States, it went okay and things were better the rest of the summer. But And now people, I think, what's the record? One guy who did Orcas 100 about three years ago, I think he did 100 every single week of the year, something like 5,200s. Wow. And it's just amazing what people are, are doing. Some of them were ones he designed on his own. His, his own, they weren't official, but still. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, I'm getting way off track here. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting. I think that it, um, it is um, hard to remember sometimes, especially for those of us who are kind of in the sport now, that there was a time not that long ago when we literally didn't know if, right. <laughs> if we could, people could run a hundred miles in the mountains right. and it was okay. Right. I know one thing I was going to say, I know your story is definitely the case, but running, what's that? But um, we didn't really have why we, it wasn't too much of a we because there were very few trail runners around and very few trail ultra runners around, but there wasn't the equipment. The shoes were pretty pathetic by today's standards. Uh, we didn't have vests and we started using waist packs, which you know, constrict your breathing a greater extent than, than uh, vests. Um, we didn't have any of the fancy, you know, filters and, and uh, other, and headlamps. That's one thing that's really changed. I'd say the shoes, the packs, and the headlamps have changed more than any, any other uh, aspect. Now, clothing is clothing, but shoes, packs, and... Uh, Headlamps are the big changes. Yeah, I can imagine. So one of the things that I noticed when I was reading about your FKTs on, on the site, and it's like you have two that are recorded. I'm sure you've set many that are unrecorded. Well, um, yeah, but, but I wasn't even thinking about We didn't have Strava yeah. back then. I only got on Strava last summer, and we didn't, which is kind of a, I don't know, it's a mixed blessing. <laughs> but we, <laughs> uh, we didn't keep track of such things. Right. Was, my favorite place to run was in the in the Satan, and I would just go there mm -hmm. and I'd go on these long, long runs. And I have a story to tell about one, particularly one a little bit later. But um, and there, there was no, there were no. I never ever see other runners. Even around right. Bellingham, I didn't see trail runners. Yeah. And now, even when I'm back, you know, miles from a road, and I think nobody else is there, there'll be some runner or runners come whizzing by, and I, wow, there's always a runner. That's, that's completely changed. <laughs> Yeah. So your your oldest FKT on the site is from 1987, and it's the North Cascades Traverse. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, 77 miles, 100 or 17,000 feet of gain. And I mean, you and I both know it's amazingly beautiful out there. But what struck me is that you wrote in your write up that it was your first long run in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, first of all, what led you to leave the roads for trails? And second of all, what led you to make your first long run well, a 77 mile okay. super remote? An <laughs> important run. correction there is the the North Cascades Traverse that is done that I did um, in September of 2020 with um, Aspire Adventure Running. That is a different course. What the one I did is only about 45 miles, and it was from the end of the Hannigan Road over Hannigan Pass, Watkin Pass. Beaver Pass, and then down Big Beaver Creek, and then to Ross Dam. That's something like 45. The reason there's a difference okay. is, for one thing, uh, in the North Cascades Reverse, we do the whole Copper Ridge section. And I didn't do run along Copper Ridge. I've done that loop, I think, five times, but I didn't run. I took the shortcut right down the headwaters oh, yeah. of the Chilliwack River. And okay. also, I didn't, when I, I did Ross Dam, and the, the North Cascades Reverse starts at the Easy Pass Trailhead, goes up Easy Pass, and then down uh, to Thunder Creek and comes out Thunder Creek. So they had that extra mm -hmm. section. At uh, any rate, what caused me to want to do that was I always like, I like looking at maps and mm -hmm. I, you know, and I knew a fair amount about the North Cascades uh, area from working there for one thing in, in the summer of 67. And some stories about, a lot of stories about that too. But anyway, the, 
um, I thought, well, at, at that point, I'd gotten into trail running, and I started doing some of the local trails off the north, uh, off uh, Mount Baker Highway, trails that I'd hiked before, and you know, I can run them, so I'd run a lot of stuff. And um, one of my first runs actually was, uh, I think I maybe done that had done that Copper Mountain Loop the first time before. No, I did it the month after. It was October of I think 87 and so I thought well uh, I know the trail pretty well the trail that I just described from Hannigan Hannigan Road to um, Ross Dam so how about running it I remember I had this really awkward kind of fanny pack that bounced around when I ran on it and I tightened it up enough to restrict my breathing and it was awful and I wore a pair of uh, shoes that were um, far a far cry from modern running shoes I remember that pack was really annoying. So I probably ran the fastest to be done with the thing to get that pack <laughs> off. And it took me, I can't believe this now because um, that it seems like it's a lot harder than I remember it. The part going up from the Chilliwack River up to uh, Watkins Pass. I was impressed how rugged that section of the trail is. I th- And also, well, part of it's been more use and more erosion on the trail than then, but Still, uh, I ran that in nine hours and 17 minutes, which I still find hard wow. to believe. But I, I kept track of all the, of course, there was no Strava or any such thing, but I kept track of all the, what we would call waypoints, what my time was to this point and that point and so on. And that's a pretty tough time. Uh, yeah. A good runner could probably knock an hour off that, but um, it's still, I don't think too many people have been interested in doing it. Everyone's doing the Wonderland and other more glamorous routes. So I'd like to see somebody a really good runner go and, and see what they could do on that. So mm-hmm. that, that was my first one. I remember uh, Audrey took me off and uh, my wife, Audrey, she dropped me off at the Hannigan trailhead. She drove back. Uh, this was Sunday. She went to church and then she drove around at the end of the day not knowing when I'd finish. And we finally figured out that I ran for a little over nine hours. She drove for seven hours that day. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. She's devoted. Um, yeah. And so that's the story on, on that. Oh, I remember uh, when I got up to Watkin Pass, this was September and the berries were all ripe. And it's, I, it's interesting. Another thing I just thought of, I did that on September 13th. And when I finished the um, North Cascades Traverse in September of 2020 with Aspire, I finished at Hannigan Camp, just opposite direction, but I finished there on the 11th and Audrey was there, you see in the film. And that was um, uh, our anniversary, 50th anniversary was the very next day. So this was right around early September, both cases. Anyway, when I got to Watkin Pass back in my solo venture, there was a big bear, big black bear right in the middle of the trail. And I actually, I'm kind of funny because I talk to bears. I'm not afraid of bears. Grizzly is another story. But when I see a bear in a trail, you start talking to them. That's I'm trying to sneak up on them, see how close I can get. And I talked to this bear, and I say, Mr. Bear, I'd really like to get by. Would you mind getting off the trail for a second? Of course, the bear didn't even pay any attention. And so finally, after that for a bit, I had to go around the bear. And then I go down the switchbacks down into the Little Beaver Creek, and there are big piles of, um, of bear poo. And so that bear had probably gone up the trail and that general vicinity of the trail for several days, eating, grazing on blueberries, and was up right past uh, when I went by. That's one little silly little story. And I have many other bear stories, but we don't want to be here till five <laughs> o'clock tonight. Yeah, I feel like it's not really a, a, 
a remote mountain run unless you have at least no. one bear that you have to ask to please let you go by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, one other quick bear, bear story. We're a friend and I were doing the the popular uh, loop around Sourdough Mountain, and uh, we were going along the West Side Trail by Ross Lake, and there's this mother bear and two cubs coming at us, about fifty, I don't know, fifty six feet away. So we stop, and I start talking to the bear. I say, Mrs. Bear, we would like to get by, please. The usual thing. And it was a stalemate. She looks back at her cubs and looks at us. And so my friend and I, we, we walk up the hill a bit, uh, thinking the bears would uh, would go right on by. Well, no, they head up the hill, too. So that was not what we wanted. So we went back on the trail and went on the trail the way we were going. Remember, they were heading toward us, and we... And then about 50 yards farther was the Pierce Mountain Way, which is the junction we wanted to take, take the trail up to Sourdough Mountain. We were doing the counterclockwise version. And I said, oh, great, that's just the way the bear, uh, bears had gone. But we didn't see them anymore. So I've never had any problems with uh, black bears and cubs. Uh, if they're not feeling threatened, they're – and I, you know, I really believe that if you show fear, they, they sense it too. I've shown more fear from dogs than I have from bears by far. And I, I don't, I'm not really knowledgeable about grizzlies. I've done some trips in the Rockies of Canada. One trip that I did was I went up there in sabbatical in 1989. And I wanted to do some trail runs as well as looking at the geology, which I was there for. But I thought, oh, well, there won't be any bears up in the high country. So I would run up. Uh, on the snow and on the firm snow in, in May. <clears throat> and then I bought this book called Bear Attacks. And I went back when I read that book at home, the section on bear behavior, it talks about in May, the grizzlies are up at the subalpine uh, area mating. So oh, great. Mm -hmm. This is just where I was thinking there'd be no bears. <laughs> so Yeah. And in the summer, they like to go up to the peaks and eat uh, larvae. Yeah. A moth larva that that's right. the, yeah. you see them at a very, very, like on top of mountains. They're, yeah. They're flipping over the rocks. That's right. Larva. I've heard about that too. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's anywhere that a bear won't be. You just <laughs> try not to be there when they're there. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the other topics I'd like to talk about, especially with regard to like your FKTs and stuff is, is about Glacier Peak. So in the last <laughs> few years, Glacier Peak has been like a hotbed of FKT activity and, you know, the current unsupported time is just under seven hours. Yeah. But back in 1998, you set an FKT on the White Chuck River Trail in just under eight hours. And, you know, currently it's listed just in the archive on Glacier Peak. But really, it's an unbreakable FKT. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and for those who aren't familiar with Glacier Peak, it's because the route has pretty much been washed out. It's done. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so I'm curious, like to hear about your FKT on Glacier Peak and, okay. and a little bit about that route and what it was yeah. like. That was the most popular route by far on Glacier Peak uh, back in those days. And I had climbed with others the standard three-day uh, approach and climb and deproach about four days before. And so I knew the route was tight and the weather was good. And so I was running. And so why not just see what I can do? I thought maybe I could do it in 10 or 12 hours. So, you know, I had I had the full-fledged climber's gear. I had ice acting crampons. Of course, I was solo, so I didn't I wasn't roped. But I knew where the crevasses were, and I thought it was perfectly safe. I'm I'm one that takes a real cautious approach to to climbing. That's why I'm an old climber, not a bold climber. And 
So I, I got up to the summit in five hours. So that's better than I thought. And one thing I noticed is that in the register, there had been a signature from uh, a guy, Dan, what's his last name? Anyway, he had, he had been the Olympic decathlon champion just a few years before. So he had gone up there and climbed. Anyway, so I got up the summit in five hours, and I said, well, let's see what I can do to get back. So I run down the mountain, get back to the trail, and I run as fast as I could uh, on the trail and get back to the car in seven hours and 54 minutes. And then um, that was before people were doing this FKT business. And I thought, well, that's pretty good time. And it stood for several years, but then the route washed out. I, we mean that the road was gone, the trail was gone, and it will, I doubt it if it'll be ever repaired. Uh, that camp that we used to stay at on that route called uh, Boulder Basin, it's probably completely obliterated. It's probably, you know, not even recognizable now. It'd be tree saplings growing up in the, in the tent sites and whatnot. So now people go in, typically they go in the North Fork of the Sauk River, which is a significantly longer route. I've done that route. I like it, but it's a lot longer. Now, people have done that. The current times, as you know, are um, on that route. And they're the same people that did that route could probably easily do, well, not easily, but they would be able to do the old route in probably an hour or two hours faster than I did it. That's the way it goes. But that the, <laughs> my claim to fame on that FKT is I doubt that unless they repair the route, anyone will ever beat that route that, that time. Right. So it's, it's yeah. apples and oranges, though. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the thing that struck me is like it's not differentiated on the website. I'm like, no, that has an unbreakable <laughs> FKT. Like that is a completely different route. Well, um, the, the route on the on the North Cascades Traverse, though, that's the same route. So anyone can go yeah. out there and hope someone listening yeah. to us go out there and knock a couple hours off that time this summer. Yeah, I hope so, too. I think that that's a really stunning route. Mm -hmm. I've hiked it. Um, yeah. And I have thought about running it. I just never have. But yeah, it's a beautiful route for sure. Just watch out for bears on Rock and Pass. Yes, just be polite <laughs> and ask them to let you go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned this just uh, a second ago, but I remember when we climbed uh, Rainier together a few years ago, um, I guess seven years ago, time mm -hmm. flies. Uh, I remember you telling me about choosing at a younger age to be an old climber yeah. rather than a bold climber. And so. Uh, I wonder if you could share with our audience about that choice and and offer any advice you have yeah. um, to other people, maybe in that that time in their life when they might be making a decision between yeah. being bold okay, or old. Okay, good question. Well, I would never. I don't know if I was really ever a bold climber, but I did things I would not do now. The risks were were different. And I, when I got married at age twenty three, I. And we're about to celebrate our 52nd anniversary this September 12th. I thought, well, it's a different story when you're married than when you're fancy free and you're invincible when you're young, so you think. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I backed off considerably on some of the things I had done before. And they're nothing compared to what people do now all the time. But still, you have to consider the times and the equipment and, every, and just the kind of the mental approach to things. And so I said, well, I really like being in the mountains and I'd, I'd like to be doing things when I'm in my older years, later years. By the way, I don't consider myself old. I'm middle-aged stage two. <laughs> I like that. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm proud to sit here in front of you and say that I'm now uh, a, an old climber, not a bold climber. Actually, I consider myself more, it just had to do with the, the it was 
how much risk are you willing to, to take? Of course, whenever you, I've had close calls like rocks flying right over my head, stuff like that, avalanches, things like that. But you try to minimize the the objective hazards, the subjective hazards. A part of that you can deal with too by knowing weather conditions. You no, know, I've had some weather situations in the past with lightning and avalanche uh, and uh, uh, potential avalanches, stuff like that, storms, lots of storms. And those, to some extent, you can even minimize that just by the present technology that's available. Weather forecasts mm-hmm. are way better than they were 50 years ago. And and you can minimize a lot of that subjective hazard. And the I, mean, I remember, hazard, I remember when we were on Rainier, we were sitting in camp checking huh? the weather and you were like, we've got to go now. <laughs> and you, <laughs> you remember know, what it was we, like the next morning, get back to camp, yep. it's a whiteout. Yep, so, exactly. And we, I mean, I still credit making the summit to your you know, your knowledge and you're and looking ahead. also to Grant Larson, who... Well, we definitely a, to Grant. We, we Absolutely had a party of very mixed uh, capability. Mm-hmm. And I was, I violated one of my longtime principles as a climb leader. I let a friend, a good friend, talk me into bringing someone who was woefully in, unprepared. Mm-hmm. But we had a big enough party and we had a strong enough party that we could yeah. get you to the summit. And, and we did. And we got back. So yeah. if we hadn't left if we'd left at midnight, like it's typical, we would have been, we would have been lucky to get as far as England Flats. We would have had yeah. to abort the climb. So, um, you know, one thing I'd like to add, as far as the being cautious, I've done an awful, and, and replies to trail running, I've done an awful lot of runs in difficult, uh, remote country on my own, and that has a big, and this was before there were inreaches and things of that sort. That adds a whole element of risk that a person has to be aware of, first of all, and they have to be willing to take. And one particular case, I was in the Satan, my favorite area to run back when I could do those big miles. I was going to do a 58-mile uh, uh, route that started, I think it was at the 8-mile uh, Creek Trailhead, and it went up to, well, almost to the border. Mm-hmm. And I was going to tag a couple of old lookout sites, Diamond Peak and Dollar Watch Peak. But one of my two of my favorite things to do in mountains are camp on summits and also to visit lookout present or former lookout sites. So mm-hmm. I was going to do a long run plus tag a couple old lookout sites. Well, I'm going along just fine. And I'm on this one section of trail that was marked as being uh, not maintained. And that was saying a mildly. There were trees down all over. And I was running along just fine. And I jump on this one tree. And all of a sudden, I slammed down hard. And I hit another log so hard. I literally thought I'd broken my femur. It was oh awful. But then wow. the real scary part was I fell down face first on on the trail right in front of me. And there was a spike of a tree, uh, another tree, uh, just a broken up limb. It was sticking straight up uh, inches from my throat. Now, wow. in reality, and this is 30 years ago, and reality is probably a foot away, but now it's creeping closer and closer. To <laughs> but the point is, right. I mm-hmm. if I had broken my femur because I was out there in a part of the trail that was not maintained, that didn't have horses on it because, you know, too many logs down, it was just a connector trail. If I had literally broken my femur, I would have died of shock. Mm-hmm. And worse yet, if I had punctured my throat on that spike, I probably would have bled out. Mm-hmm. And I've had doctor friends of mine say, well, if we'd had you in the ER operating table, we might have been able to save you from the, the, punct- the puncture to your throat. But out there, we could have had a team of 
of uh, emergency room doctors and probably would have lost you. And that really got me thinking. Here I am out here by myself doing this or normal, this routine kind of thing, running on trails. But one step, the problem was the bark was loose and mm-hmm. I, it looked fine. But when I stepped on it, since I was running pretty quick, when I stepped on it, the bark just slipped off. And that's what caused me to, it's like slipping on the proverbial banana peel, go down hard. Right. So I, ever since that time, this was good, what, 30 years ago or more, I am very careful when I'm running on trails to not have, you know, anyone that's run very much knows that it's when you're least expecting it, that's when you go down. When you're really focused and concentrated, I've never had a bad fall on rough terrain. It's always been the easiest ground where I trip Mm -hmm. on my own feet or something like that. Oh, yeah. And so I learned from that. And the lesson for other people is to, if you're doing stuff solo, first of all, be willing to accept the risk. And second of all, um, be prepared for bad things to happen because eventually they will or they can. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, another thing I recommend is and urge people to do is whenever you're going somewhere, leave a detailed note with a responsible person of where you're going to go and don't change your itinerary. Don't go, say, to the North Fork, the Nooksack River Valley, and decide you're going to go to the Skagit instead because they'll be looking in the wrong place for you. And they mm-hmm. ought to know who to contact if you're not back at a designated time. Yeah. Don't just call anyone randomly. Uh, they should know the chain of events to that should progress if you're not back at a reasonable designated time. Yeah. Yeah, those are all really good points and, and definitely things that I have learned myself in my time in the mountains as well just you know like you said you you don't take bad falls in in bad terrain like i'm always falling on the sidewalk that seems to be the <laughs> only too. time i fall because <laughs> yeah. i trip over the sidewalk you know yeah. and it's like like yeah. you know, I've, I've taken some bad spills in the mountains and but i yeah. you know i've never really like hurt myself badly knock on wood yeah. Um, but yeah some of my worst falls have been on sidewalks and, you know, I, I definitely never used to send, you know, leave an itinerary or anything like that. But yeah, that's yeah smart. just come to realize how important yeah. that is. Especially yeah. when you do stuff on your own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Solo mountaineering definitely really got me to start leaving itineraries with people uh-huh. and, and letting them know uh, where I was going. And in, in recent years, I mean, I mentioned we were on Rainier together. I know you began working a little bit more focused on the Bulger list. And I don't know if you're still doing that. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, yeah. I realized that um, <clears throat> I don't have too many more years left in climbing. Mm-hmm. And I have probably at least, oh, I don't know, about 40 of those peaks to climb. And a lot of them don't interest me at all. Right. I'm not very interested in, in Mount Custer, except the fact that it's a wreckage of an old extinct volcano. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, I, I'd like to go in. I haven't been in the, except for working when we do helicopter support, and I'd been in the Chilliwack Mountains, but we weren't climbing stuff. We were just, you know, doing geology. But I haven't gone up Depot Creek with his legendary potholes. And if nothing else, I'd like to go in there and go up the fixed rope up the waterfall. <laughs> just, right. <laughs> I have friends who aren't even climbers who have been in there. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't mind climbing Redoubt and maybe uh, Spickard, but uh, and Mount Rom, since Dave Rom was a professor of mine in college, it'd be kind of neat to climb that. Oh, anyway, neat. some of those things don't interest me that much. I'm not interested right. in the in the Mox Peaks. Uh, they sound too scary. And if it scares Becky, it scares me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm more of a hill walker now. I just like going out and and enjoying the, the especially the Alpine country and doing things that I don't 
get too freaked out on. Yeah. That are pretty much low risk. Oh, well, that, that, that fall I took on the trail was low risk theoretically, but look what almost happened. Right. So I, I don't think I, I'm almost certain I will never uh, do all the Boulder peaks and that's okay with me. I'm not, right. I used to be interested, like I wanted to run all the hundreds and I wanted to do this and that. And, and now I am not so much of this uh, checker. Right. So tell me a little bit about what your current athletic endeavors are. Well, see now I, I, I do hill walking. I still uh, dabble at running, but not racing. I uh, recently joined a gym at last October and I've taken up to concept two rowing. And also a thing a lot of people are not aware of, it's the concept two, that's the, the, the company, uh, what's called the ski erg. I really like that. And I can do that, that particular piece of apparatus uh, pretty well. It's a really good workout, both of them, that and the rowing. And I've- What is, I, what is the ski erg? I don't okay, know. Okay, it's a, the, uh, the upright device that has two handles with uh, the, the ropes attached to the uh, flywheel and it's like double pulling and cross country skiing. You don't oh, really use your okay. legs that much. You're not doing full squats or anything. You're using your, your abdomen, abdomen and your uh, arms and your, your latissimus dorsi. You're pulling okay. hard on these at the same time in these two. Uh, and it keeps track of your, your power output, your, your pace per 500 meters, your calorie per hour, all this stuff. And then what's really addictive somewhat is you can get on the Concept2 website and you can log your times in there and uh, compare yourself with your age division and the, the state, the country, the world. And I've actually done really well for a while. I had uh, four or five number one world rankings in my division. But uh, now, the, the uh, again, in the ski thing, they're the uh, people with names like Lars and and all this they're Norwegian and Swedish and whatnot. And there are a lot, probably some of them are old, uh, former Olympic cross country ski racers. Who knows? They, they have times to shatter anything I could do, but it's really fun. And it's, right. it's, it's been, and then I've been doing some weightlifting too, primarily the, uh, deadlift because I can do that. I can't really do overhead lifts because my shoulders are bummed out, uh, just kind of destroyed, but I can do the, I can pull. It's funny when you do a deadlift, they call it pulling. You're lifting mm -hmm. it, but you're pulling it off the ground. Oh, <laughs> so I can do yeah. that. That's fun. Yeah. But recently I've had some health problems too. I, well, mm -hmm. I had uh, cancer five years ago and took care of that. It was prostate cancer. But then I just, uh, about 10 days ago, I learned from my, I had some uh, heart uh, tests and I found out I have a pretty bad heart. <laughs> so, oh, no. So I, but yeah. With, uh, I'll know a lot more on this, on June 6th when I have a, appointment with my cardiologist it might yeah. my, i have a couple of things arrhythmia which is irregular heartbeat i've mm -hmm. that for a long time and then more more critically i have uh, coronary calcium fairly high level and oh. that's something that is more serious that can lead right. to heart attacks and strokes and things so now why mm -hmm. do i take up two sports that require good heart and lungs distance running and mountaineering when i have bad hearts and lungs who knows i guess because like i'd like to say I don't like bowling or, or, <laughs> or golf. <so>. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to watch this, the stress level. I ha I can't, I mean, the exertion level, I can't right. go all out too hard. And boy, I, I just leave my soul on that uh, rowing machine. And, just, <laughs> and now I just got to take it easier. Right. Every time we talk, I love the way that throughout your life, you have, you moved from one thing to the other and 
you continue to move your body, um, no matter what, you know, whatever obstacle comes your way, you, yeah. you, you pivot and you continue. And, um, I think that's great. And I think it's a source of inspiration to me and I'm sure to other people as well. That's nice. One thing I like to do now, I like to say that the reason I go to the gym is so I can stay healthy enough to work our five acres. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 There's something to be said for, um, staying fit for just living a good life. Uh-huh. Yeah. I look at other people almost 75 years old and I don't want to compare it, but when, if I do compare, I don't want to be excess, excessively compare. I do compare though. I think, well, I'm still able to do things that a lot of those people and many, many of them dear friends couldn't begin to do. Mm-hmm. And no, yeah. I've been blessed by God with a body that can do things that, and if I can do them, why not do them uh, and what, do it to bless other people too, by, by primarily by helping other people. It's not about me. It's about helping other people. Absolutely. That's a wonderful way to live life. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Doug, and sharing your stories. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. There's so many other stories, but we'll have to do those around a campfire one of these days. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> or on a, maybe on a, a hill walk. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> on a summit camp. Yes. Where there was perfect. an old lookout. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. The lookout list is intriguing to me. Yeah. All right. You can check out Doug's FKTs and details about the routes on the website, fastestknowntime.com. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Heather on the FKT Podcast.